just before you enter the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., there's a sign. It's a simple sign. And it says this. Think about what you saw. It's not just a sign. It's not just a slogan. But it's a call to action to remember the past so as to shape the future. The museum is meant as a living memorial to preserve the memory of the victims while calling future generations out of passivity into action. Memory, the gift of memory. The Jews do it well. They remember the Passover as it ends with those beautiful lines, next year in Jerusalem. Today, Bill decided to show me the sights. Speaking of memory, I had more interest in going to get chocolate in Hershey or the amusement park, but he insisted I go to Gettysburg. I'd always wanted to go, and it was a treat. Think about what we memorialize. The world will little note nor long remember. Those words aren't true. Little Round Top, Devil's Den, The Peach Orchard, Pickett's Charge. They're memorialized. They're in our memories. They're in the memories, perhaps, of your grandparents or great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents. For it's only, what, 154 years ago. These words of St. Paul to the people of Corinth remind us, as do four gospel accounts, of our most important memory. He uses the word remembrance. He uses the word handed over, little double meaning. Jesus was handed over, and the memory of that is handed over to us, traditio, tradition, to do this in memory of me. These words mean something to us. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote this in the 13th century. Beautiful passage. Quote, because last words chiefly such as are spoken by departing friends are committed most deeply to memory, since then especially affection for friends is more enkindled. And the things which affect us most are impressed deepest in the soul. This is what Augustine says. In order to commend more earnestly the death of this mystery, our Savior willed this last act to be fixed in the hearts and memories of the disciples whom he was about to quit for the Passion. How many of you remember a last conversation with your dad or your mom or a grandparent or a friend? A last call. We can think of it this week, how many people called on 9-11 using their phone. How much we'd like to hear their voice in person again or kiss them on the cheek. The Lord had a way of not just keeping a memory, but of remaining with us.
Of all the Easter appearances, I think my favorite is the one on the road to Emmaus. But there's a little fun that Jesus has there. Remember with the the couple? Some people think it's a couple, the two disciples. Remember he was walking with them, and they get to the inn. Remember what I said the other night about the inn? Look what happens here with this inn. When there was no hospitality at his birth, they now invite him in to the inn. But he pretends that he wants to go on. Oh, no, that's all right. I don't need dinner. But they insist, and he stays. He stays. And, of course, they recognize him in the breaking of the bread. He's gone, but he's there. And important for them and important for us, he had been asked to come in. He had to be welcomed in by his disciples. And Thomas says this about that. In fact, the author of Tantum Ergo Sacramentum, quote, because it is the special feature of friendship to live together with friends, he promises to his friends his bodily presence as a reward, yet meanwhile in our pilgrimage here on earth, He does not deprive us of his bodily presence. Hence, this sacrament is the sign of supreme charity and the uplifter of our hope. His presence remains. Those words, do this in memory of me, occur four times and a little different version here in Paul. But there's another account, the longest account of the Last Supper, that has nothing to do with those words. That is another take on the Eucharist. And it comes to us from John. When I'm talking to kids or teaching, I remind everybody that there's a different, in a way, if you were at a football game, a camera angle on an event. The Gospels, Scriptures are like that. You can have the camera that's at the 50-yard line. You can have the camera that's on the field. You can have that camera now that goes along that little line. And then you can have the big picture, the big picture from the blimp, where you take it all in. Well, the longest account is actually in the Gospel of John and doesn't even tell us what Jesus said, those words that we repeat in the Mass. He gives us a whole other camera angle. And why that is probably is because he wrote that toward the end of the first century when the Eucharist was being practiced and the words were commonly known. But he wanted to make another point. And it's only in his version that we get Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And I thought about it because it's written by John and we spoke about John and Mary at the birth of the church last night that in one evening, John was sitting there looking down at his master washing his feet. And the next afternoon, he was looking up at him dying on the cross. The looking down and the looking up. The looking down at God and the looking up at the dying man. And I think in John's mind, forever linked, were suffering 
and service. Because you know in that John account, it's very well done because it's considered the day before Passover. And what we have there is this, that as he stresses from his camera angle the washing of feet, Jerusalem was preparing the lambs for the Exodus Passover meal. The circumstance must have made a great impact on John and the disciples later as they took it all in. For as the master washed their feet, the sounds of the Passover lambs were being slaughtered all over the city. Sacrifice and service were forever inextricably linked. That notion for us, the body, continues. I began two nights ago speaking from birth and the beginning of Christmas. We use that word so easily. What's Christmas mean? It means Mass, Christ. But what's Mass mean? It comes to us from the very charge we're given at the end of Mass. Ita misa est. It's the past participle to be sent. It's to remind us of that service aspect, that what we do here continues out there. It cannot be contained within walls, just as he could not be contained. And so we take what they did and take those words to heart from last night to go to everybody in his name, whether or not we baptize them, but that we teach and that we heal and that we feed. Finally, there's nothing to priests. The priests here will agree with me, those who are pastors yet. There's nothing more fun and more wonderful as a priest that we do than First Communion. And I always say this to the little ones. You will remember your First Communion because I've never met anybody who hasn't. If you're here, don't speak up now. (laughs) Bill? No one forgets their first communion. I don't know if it's like a first date or a first kiss or a first job or your marriage, but nobody I know ever has forgotten their first communion. And why? Because it's so wonderful. It's wide-eyed. It's all that beauty about children let them come to me, about their purity, about their eyes and faith that are so clear because they have no legacy of sinful habits. They're not doubtful of their own loyalty to him. You and I are different from the day of our first communion, but each of us is the same person. The gift is always the same. That Jesus of Nazareth, who appeared there with Mary and Joseph in the manger as food for the animals, who was on the cross, who went through the walls of the upper room, continues to feed us. The gift we received on our first communion is the gift we continue to receive, whether daily or weekly, for he is Jesus Christ yesterday, today, and forever. But something we don't think much about, and priests might do it a little more because we do it rather often, 
Do you ever think about your last communion? I hope when I say that, that we each have the grace of having that sacrament fortify us for the journey. In some ways, though, we see it in hospice or hospital rooms or at home or whatever, your last communion isn't much different than your first. Other people are making the arrangements, your mind may be wandering, and you're a bit childlike. But the beauty of it is that it's the same Lord who reaches out and the clear conscience of childhood, not having to look back on all those sins and all those perhaps wrong turns in life, so many opportunities wasted, so many days misspent. I knew Malcolm Muggridge when I was younger, and he had a wonderful term for his autobiography. He called it Chronicles of Wasted Time. The time we spend here in prayer with him Time we spend coming out of, what, 168 hours in the week, can you not be one hour with me, are not wasted. I said at the beginning that that breath in the upper room to the apostles was, of course, the breath of Yahweh in creation. And when he offers you any communion with him, but especially our last, he will be offering us the breath of life in a piece of bread. There's a paradox about that, for the air we breathe is not our own, and yet we all breathe the same air. He is that air. He is that life. Breathe him in. Breathe in his love, his forgiveness, his mercy, and you are in his company, his company, remember the root of that word, kumpane, with bread, his company of brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is the head of that body, that company, the church, and he breaks not just through the barrier of the wall of that upper room, like last night, but he breaks the barrier of spirit and matter, of time and space coming to us, filling us, coming within us, making us a holy of holies, a tabernacle, a monstrance, a temple mount of his abundant and abiding love.